Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. We continue this week our sermon series that we started last week on uh, the local church. It's about us being the local church. I, I say every year around this time we do this invitation to activation. I mean, it's one thing to talk about our faith. We're a very uh, Western society is pretty cerebral. We like to talk about ideas, and, and, and every so often it's, it's kind of time to go like, but how do I activate in this specific arena? And so we use this season to take on really kind of specific issues and specific topics, and, and how do we activate in meaningful ways in our community? And so last week we started that, this week we continue, and we're going to be uh, looking at something Jesus did that, that felt quizzical, I'm sure, to the people around him. Um, and what he's going to do, we're going to read it in a minute, he, he's making a statement to train our eyes, who we see, how we see, and what Jesus is going to attempt to do today through uh, the Word of God. What, what I think our challenge is, is he wants to train our vision to see beyond kings and kingmakers in our culture and to see with kingdom lenses. And so let's just get into Mark chapter 9, verse 33. It says, they came to Capernaum, and when he, uh, Jesus, was in the house, Jesus asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? He's asking his disciples who'd been walking with him. What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and he said, listen, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them and taking the child in his arms, some versions say cradling the child, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. They came to Capernaum, it says. This is Capernaum today. It's a couple of modern-looking structures. Uh, the octagonish thing is, is built over what is known to be Peter's home, Simon Peter's home. And there's a glass floor in that church. You go into it, it's a modern Catholic church, and there's a glass floor in the raised church, and you can see down into the, the remains, the ruins of Peter's home. There's a kind of a visitor center that you see, a very modern-looking building. This large white building uh, that's kind of taller than the other ruins is, is a fourth-century synagogue that's built on the synagogue that Jesus would have been in, in Capernaum, in his time. And so you really can get a sense. You can see outlying areas. There's a few other structures out there, but this is Capernaum. It doesn't really overwhelm you with its size or its scale. It's not something that is awe-inspiring because of its, its great uh, density or its great breadth. It's just sort of there. It's actually a dusty village on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, which you can see there. And if you notice, you can see across the Sea of Galilee as well. The Sea of Galilee, while we're here, is the largest freshwater lake in Israel, also called the Kinneret, which is Hebrew for violin. It's a violin-shaped lake, and it's relatively tiny. So all of Israel fits into Lake Michigan. If you take the outline of Lake Michigan and you take the entire country of Israel, you can put Israel in Lake Michigan with room on the outside. The Sea of Galilee, let me just, well, I have a graph. Let's just compare it to the smallest of the Great Lakes. There's the Sea of Galilee, and there's the smallest of the Great Lakes, Lake Ontario. So the Sea of Galilee is not an overwhelming, powerful body of water. It's a thimble full of water compared to um, even things in our region. So 
what we see is we're starting with small and unimpressive things. We have a, a village, a town of about 1,500, this humble fishing village next to this sea, this violin-shaped lake. And what we begin to understand as we look at this passage is this is not Rome. This is not the seat of power that Jesus takes his, his friends and his followers to. This is not Athens. It's not the seat of knowledge. It's not Jerusalem, the seat of religious importance. Jesus and his disciples are walking, and in this unimportant place, in this unimportant town next to this really kind of unimportant lake, they're asking, who's the most important? Who's the greatest? How do we get there? These unimportant men, fishermen, a tax collector, a zealot, in this nothing village on this nowhere lake, all they can talk about is who's most important. How do I become the greatest? So how did Jesus adjudicate their argument? I think what he says to them is how you see the world is broken. In, in not so many words, I would translate that further. He, he's looking at them and they say, uh, he goes, what were you guys arguing about on the road? And then no one wants to say they're a little embarrassed. And, and he basically says how you see the world is broken. Anyone who wants to be first must be last. Greatness even then was measured the same way it's measured now. How many followers do you have? How many followers do you have on your social media? Back then, it was just, if you're a rabbi of some great importance, you have more followers than other rabbis. That was it. You, more people would crowd around you. And you see in Jesus' ministry, the crowds came, the crowds came. And what always happened to the crowds? They'd come, and then they'd leave. But there was a sense of power when you had more followers. So not much changes. Jesus says, with me, it's not about most. It's not about the most. It's not about more. It's not about greatest. It's about least. It's not about you, Jesus is telling them, but it's about how you serve them. So he says, how you see is broken. And I think this is profound for us because how you actually see, how we see, how our eyes see is kind of broken by design. I'm going to put this graphic. Dwayne's got this for us. This is how your eyeball works. That eye is really gross looking. I'm sorry. It's the best one I could find. This is how your eyeball sees. There is a tree. Your eye, because it is curved, the way it brings in light, and we don't want to get into science because I'll fall flat on my face real quick here. I know about this much. Um, Wikipedia is a great source for this. I'm just kidding. So your eyeball being curved, it takes the image and it inverts it. And so your retina, this kind of, this thing on the back of your eyeball that is going to basically be like the projector, it's kind of the projector in the back of your eye, your retina, that's how it, it shows up. It shows up upside down because it's been curved and inflected, refracted, there's a word. So your eye sees an upside down tree. That's the first image that comes into your brain. Your brain then has this thing called vestibular correction, and it begins to do the work, and it's really oversimplistic to so say your brain flips it back right side up, but your brain flips it back right side up. And then what you actually experience in real time is the tree looking the way the tree should look. But this complex series of things happens. Your eye brings it in upside down, your brain fixes it, flips it, and now you see a different way. So this is interesting to me for a lot of reasons, but this kind of thing, our brains, our bodies were designed a certain way. I try to think of it this way. What makes it so fascinating to me is, is the upside downedness, the vestibular correction is so that you don't feel like nauseous. You know that feeling when you have vertigo feeling or you've, you're at the edge of a steep you know, building and you look down and something just kind of turns in you. A lot of people, vertigo, people have issues with their, uh, oh, what, what, what's the word I'm looking for now? S something. Your inner ear stuff, yes. Well, if I turned this building 
on its side, we would have minor panic, right? We would feel profoundly, uh, our disequilibrium would engage. We would feel profoundly unmoored if I turned the building on its side. Somehow, if you turn your head on its side, I still feel in balance. I don't feel nauseous. I don't feel disequilibrium. I can turn, I can go upside down for a while. And there's a thing in my brain that is correcting all the time to tell me everything is fine. Everything's okay. This is interesting to me because we don't get dizzy. We don't panic. And, and this is how you were designed. An 1890s psychologist named George Stratton invented uh, upside down glasses. He wanted to test this further. He goes, maybe there's something to this. So he invented glasses that inverted the image before it got to his eyeball so that his eye re-inverted it and it got into his brain the first time right way up, which meant his brain would do what? Thinking it needs to flip the image, he was then upside down all the time. He couldn't, he was, it was pretty jarring. And in these upside down glasses, for five days, he went through the world upside down and then his brain flipped it again. He wore them every day and eventually his brain corrected again to where even in his upside gla- down glasses, his brain was like, no, no, I think I need... I know what I need to do. And that vestibular correction, that thing inside of your brain that God has designed, got it right side up again, and he was able to go through the world normally. This is so interesting to me because I feel like this is the spiritual life. That you and I see the world naturally in such a way that Jesus has to come and correct it for us. Jesus has to be the corrective within us. So, so as the world is operating on an upside-down, uh, negative upside-down, cultural, societal, always has, always will, Jesus is here to be the corrective for us. He's the thing to, to flip it right side again, to make us see it correctly. And yet, we would say it's an upside-down kingdom. That We would say he actually flips it in such a way that the world feels radically unmoored when confronted with Jesus. But Jesus says, it's the right way, I promise. He flips what the world calls right, and he says it's something else entirely. Up is down, great is least. And that doesn't make sense. So he brings in the upside-down kingdom of heaven in a lakeside hamlet with the poor and uneducated, and we can assent to this. We can kind of intellectually say, I think I understand that. But it's hard to apply for us because we are still operating with uh, worldly lenses if we're not careful. And we are always being invited to replace our kingdom lens, the Jesus corrective, with the worldly lens. We're invited to even just conflate them a little bit, even just combine them a little bit, a little Jesus here and a little bit of culture there, and I'll make it, it'll make it work. We're invited into that, and it sullies the water. We're trained to see towers and powers. As people, in our modern culture, we are trained to see towers and powers. We associate, think about this, we associate cities with their grandest and most powerful structures. So if I say Rome, you think the Colosseum. When I say New York City, the Empire State Building. When I say Columbus, the horseshoe. Immediately, you said it, the horseshoe. It's the first place you went. You wouldn't have said that had they lost the Northwestern, but you did now. <laughs> what is it about the horseshoe that is so exciting? I mean, it's it's kind of an ugly concrete bowl. <laughs> Where are you going, sir? No. Um, we are drawn to places of significance and power. And so on a Saturday afternoon, 100,000 people will go to a concrete bowl to cheer on modern warriors 
because it's a, it's a place of profound power and excitement. It's powerful people crashing against powerful people. It's, it's powerful sounds and noises. It's the smells and it's, the, it's, it's power. We're drawn to power. We want power, the seat of power. And everywhere we go, we can find the powerful places. Our eyes are trained to see it. You're trained to know where is power. Where is the might? Where is the strength? What is magnificent? Where is the mass? I want to be near the mass. We want more power in everything. This is true in your car. My previous car I owned, I'm RIP, my little uh, red hatchback, had 108 horsepower. You could feel every one of them trying to get up a hill sometimes. <laughs> we have cars that go pretty fast. 400 horsepower, 500 horsepower, a Tesla zero to 60 in three seconds. Who needs to go zero to 60 in three seconds? Nobody, but it's fun and we're drawn to it. We like these things, we like more power. A friend was telling me recently that his leaf blower can generate winds in excess of 190 miles per hour. Hurricane force leaf blower. To which I said, that's ridiculous, and nobody needs that much leaf blower power. Then I told my wife the story, which was a tremendous mistake. We live in a heavily wooded neighborhood with lots of leaves. We currently have a 40-foot long, 4-foot wide, 4-foot tall pile of leaves on the curb. And I said, isn't that silly, 190 miles an hour? And then I got my leaf blower, and I started blowing leaves, and it was like a chihuahua coughs. You know, that's about the power. <laughs> And she goes, you need that leaf blower. So whatever I wanted for Christmas, it doesn't matter because I'm getting the leaf blower probably. Um, more power. Why wouldn't I want more power? It's better. It's better to have power. Your iPhone. A new iPhone can process, I don't even know how to make sense of this number, 17 trillion, that's a lot of zeros, it's about a trillion, it's 17 trillion operations per second. It's processing power. 17 trillion operations per second in a new iPhone. We will compare this, a USB-C charger, a new USB charger that just plugs in the wall and charges your device, okay? Has more computing power in it than the computer that guided the Apollo moon landing. The thing that charges your phone has more power than the, U, than the, the, the Apollo spaceship. This is the equivalency. We found this online. This is a real thing. Your Nintendo from 1986 is the same amount of power that was in the computer that got uh, people on the moon. You were blowing in a cartridge, <sighs> trying to make punch out work or duck hunt work or whatever you were trying, you're blowing in cartridges just hoping that you could get your stupid game to work. And there were people landing on the moon with those cartridges. It's insane. We want more, though. We want more. Can it get more? I want faster. What's our main complaint with computers, your iPad, your, your phone, your whatever? It's just so slow. Right? 17 trillion operations a second. It's too slow. I was trying to watch this thing on Netflix, and it was lagging. It was slow. It skipped. It took forever to load. How long did it take? Seven seconds. <sighs> it's too slow. We need it faster. We need more. Our eyes are trained for it. Our hearts are trained for it. We want more power. We're drawn to it. And it's not just in what we look at, but it's who we look to. Politicians and celebrities, titans of industry and media. I'll tell you how old I am by just saying I go to CNBC.com once or twice a day. Sorry. There are stories 
I'm just trying to see how the stock market is doing. And there are stories, multiple stories every day in the last month or so about either what Elon Musk thinks about anything or what Kanye West said about something. I want to know how the economy is doing in a general, large, broad sense. I'm not looking for any great insight. And I need to be told what these titans of industry or celebrity or music, or I, I, for some reason they think I care and I don't, but I recognize that I must because everybody must be clicking on these things because they just keep showing up. Who cares what Kanye thinks about any of these things? I don't. I don't know that I care what Elon Musk thinks about some of these things, but he has power. And with power, we listen. With power, we're drawn. With power, we go, so he can make this happen, though. So if he says it, it has power. We're drawn. What else would he say? What else might he do? We're obsessed with power and with the powerful. Because we see a world where power controls the levers of everything we want. Because the greatest and the strongest and the richest people lead us. And whether we like to admit it or not, the greatest and the strongest and the richest are the people that get worshipped in our culture. And so we, like the disciples, being in our culture, begin to seek being great and powerful and strong and rich as well. We seek that same power because that seems to be where important things happen. So how do we achieve it? We look around, we make notes, it's money, it's fame, it's strength, it's influence. If I can gain those things, then I can grow in power. If I grow in power, then I can grow in importance. If I grow in importance, then maybe I can make a difference in the world. So we chase it, and we argue about it, and we long for it, and Jesus overhears the longings of our hearts as we argue on the road, who's the greatest? Jesus overhears the longing of our hearts, and his response to it is, anyone who wants to be first must be last, the servant of all. Then what does he do next? Jesus takes the least powerful person in the room, he finds one. And it says he takes a little child in his arms. First, he puts him in the middle of the disciples, and it says, then he takes the child in his arms. So how big is this child, we have to ask? My kids are 13, almost 14, and 10. When my 10-year-old wants to get into my arms, it's profoundly uncomfortable for both of us. It's no longer a cuddling child. She will cuddle with me, but now we're snuggling and not cuddling, and I'm not holding and cradling. We're more like, you know... She, she's getting there. She's 10. Well, I'm not, I don't think that child is being cradled. I don't think Jesus is picking up a 10-year-old, maybe a three or four-year-old max. I don't know what age we stop cradling children, but three or four seems pretty up there. What's the difference? Why does it matter how old the kid was? Because Jesus cradles an utterly dependent creature. My 14-year-old, uh, 13-year-old, 14-year-old, 13 for now, is homesick right now. So we're waiting to take her to the doctor after church. She's homesick. My wife is leading worship. He's preaching, where? You left your child homesick? Guess what? My 10-year-old is her nurse right now. She's texting us this morning, go, what kind of tea do you think she'd like when she wakes up for her throat? So that's sweet. My 10-year-old is nursing my 13-year-old. My 13-year-old is 5'7", cooks, cleans, does laundry, all the things, can do any job I've ever done in my life, probably better than I do it. She's amazing. My 10-year-old is showing, hey, I'm pretty amazing too. And you go, okay, well, these are not... These are not utterly reliant creatures. If we disappeared, I think they might not notice for a day or two. Like, they got this figured out. They are many adults in training. So I think that's why it matters how old this kid is that Jesus picks up, because if he's cradling a child in his arm, it's different if he's holding a 14-year-old that's really just a mini-adult than if he's holding a 2-year-old, because a 2-year-old we know to be different. 
a two-year-old wobbling around in a pull-up, what do they do? What's their contribution to the society? Some of you have two-year-olds. They eat. They sleep. They poop. And then they do it all again. That is their contribution to your home at the moment. They can't cook, much less grow their own food or sustain themselves in any conceivable way. They are utterly reliant on you to sustain them, aren't they? There is an age where they begin to show some independence, but there is also an age where they are utterly reliant on you. So let's talk about our culture. In our culture, we respect children, we honor children, uh, depending on how you would look at it. As someone said, we worship our kids. You look at your, your bank statement or your schedule, and our kids seem to run the show. Ancient cultures, this was not so much true. Look, they didn't hate their children. That's, that's sometimes people paint that too harshly. That's not true. But they raised them to be helpful, to be contributors. And so they would want them to be part of the provision and part of the well-being, and, and they had jobs to do and things to, to contribute to the, the overall prosperity of the household. And so until a child was old enough to add value to the household, they were essentially a drain on the household. It was costing. It's an investment. that you're, It's draining resources in the hope that in future days it might contribute resources. Kids literally sucked resources away from the rest of the house until they were old enough to help. Feel free to tell your children that. Until you're 12. So in this sense, children are an afterthought. They were not worshipped like they were in our culture. There's nothing wrong with soccer practice or dance or piano. But I don't think people in Capernaum were rushing their children around to private lessons and extracurriculars. They were saying, will you please grow up so you can help me with the grain tonight? They're an afterthought. I planted cherry trees in my backyard in the last couple of years. Might be years, I was told, before they fruit. I really don't like those trees right now. They were a lot of work to put in. They cost me money. I have to kind of baby them at times. One lost all of its leaves way early this year, so that may not be. It may never come back. And the promise is maybe one day in the future they will provide fruit for my family. But until then, they're just a lot of work and no reward. So Jesus sets a two-year-old on his lap, let's say, and he says, this is what you should be looking for. The greatest? No, 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 don't worry about the greatest. We got to be about the least. And he puts a two-year-old on his lap and he says, this is who you serve. Not the people who can get you something, not someone who you can leverage for power. Find someone who's utterly reliant. Jesus says, that's how you serve me. Find someone who can't pay you back. That's how you serve me. Train your vision to see those who are in need because you can serve and host people who benefit you, and that simply serves to puff your ego or get you favors in return. And he says, basically, if that's who we serve, if we serve those who can pay us back, we're really serving ourselves. Matthew 6, Jesus says this. He says, be especially careful when you're trying to be good so you don't make a performance out of it. It might be good theater, but the God who made you won't be applauding. Matthew 6 is tough for us you keep going to Matthew 6. He says, when, when you give, give in secret. Give quietly. When you pray, pray in secret, not so others can see it or know about it. When you fast, fast without attention. Don't draw attention to yourself. Why? It's not like a secret donation is worth more than a public donation, right? And we, we, can, we can get there. We go, look, a dollar is a dollar. It spends like a dollar. And so if you put a million dollars in the black box today, it spends the same way. You're welcome to do that now if you'd like. 
What he knows is that our hearts are impacted in the way that we do things. Giving can be about displaying our generosity for public gain. Prayer can be a way to showcase our righteousness for some sort of spiritual uh, status-seeking. Fasting can be about broadcasting our holiness so others know that we really must be faithful. In Luke 14, Jesus talks about hospitality. He says, when you have someone over for dinner, invite someone who can't repay you. Because what's the point if everybody you ever have over, that's, that's, that's not hospitality. That's not that at all. Biblical hospitality is radically different. Biblical hospitality looks like the wall of children as you walked in today. There's biblical hospitality in those kids' eyes and offer for us to get involved in some way, big or small. Biblical hospitality starts with taking a kid off the tree, the giving tree, and saying, we're going we're gonna to start in some way. This kid will never know it was me and they'll never repay me. There's something there. But it isn't in, in having me over for dinner because I could just have you over back. I'd love to come to dinner, but we're not doing something radical there. We're not serving anybody that couldn't serve themselves. And this is where Jesus is saying you have to train your eyes to do something different. The gift for us, if we can do what he's asked us to do, if we can begin to train our eyes to see smaller and lesser, if we can begin to train our eyes to see the least of these and the vulnerable and the reliant, if we can train our eyes to not go towards the seat of power but towards the seat of need, is that we learn how to become more like those we serve. Because we live in a world obsessed with power and wealth. And Jesus, when he was addressing this kind of similar question in Matthew 18, it looks like it's a different time. And the disciples said, yeah, but who's the greatest? How do we become great? How do we win at this thing? Matthew 18, starting in verse 3, he says, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child, who he's again holding a child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. You see, the challenge is not just to love children and not just to love the least of these. The challenge is to get to know them so as to become them to learn from them. So Jesus again puts a toddler on his lap, an utterly reliant creature, a totally dependent human. And he says, to know me and my kingdom, this is what you have to become like. Jesus is fixing our vision. The world wants to see one way, trying to focus on celebrity and power and status. And Jesus says, I'm here to flip that. I am your corrective lens. I will flip that. And you will never see the same way again. I'm going to show you the upside-down kingdom because it's the way to life. It's not do-gooding to do-goodness. It's, it's not that. It's not almsgiving to say we give to the poor and we're charitable. Jesus wants us to be transformed by dealing with those who can't repay us. He wants us to be turned inside out by loving those the world has discarded. It isn't about giving away some of your wealth. It's about becoming spiritually, intellectually poor like those you serve, so that you might find your wealth in Jesus and nothing less. And what we know to be true is the culture will fight back. This is not a culture war thing. This is that you are either being discipled by Jesus or discipled by the culture. And the culture will tell you, you need more followers, you need more money, you need a better car, you need a nicer house, you need a leaf blower that blows 195 miles an hour, that'll show him. And your job as a follower of Christ is to train your eyes on Jesus, to listen to the words of Jesus, to embrace the unimportant around you, 
to fight for the least of these, to take care of children, and utterly to become like them before your Father in heaven. Which is what? Jesus is inviting us to become vulnerable and reliant and utterly dependent. We live in a culture where vulnerability is not okay. Put a brave face on, friend. Get out there. Wipe some dirt on it. You're okay. We live in a culture where reliance, the only reliance we like to talk about is self-reliance, self-sustainability. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can do this. Be independent. Make a name for yourself. And Jesus says you have to become reliant. You have to become dependent. You have to become vulnerable. And if you can become those things before me, then you experience the kingdom of heaven. Then you know what it's like to be with me. You might begin to know the fullness of the upside-down kingdom. So the invitation today is to take a look at the faces on the heart gallery and see what God's speaking to you. The invitation is to take a name off a tree that represents a real, living, breathing child and to go buy them presents at Amazon and Target. Those things are good things. But they are for the purpose of training you to become more like those people, more like those children, more reliant, more dependent, more vulnerable. And if we can find that, Jesus is there. That's where we find the kingdom. And if we want nothing else, friends, we want to be in the kingdom of heaven. We want to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. So may we be humble and reliant before him today. Let's pray. Lord, we are uh, grateful for your bigness, for your massive, important, significant, powerful self. Father, my prayer is that we would allow you to be strong and we would allow you to be powerful. We would seek power in you, not in anything else. We would be drawn to you and your greatness, not try to build our own. Father, we would learn to become more dependent and more reliant on you, even though we are invited constantly to become more independent and self-reliant on ourselves. God, I pray that you would uh, put in front of us, whatever it looks like, whatever it means, put in front of each of our hearts some picture of the children that you must have held in those days on the unimportant lake with the unimportant friends. God, give us a sense of what it means to be with somebody profoundly unimportant. Let us hold a two-year-old, run across somebody with no status, Father, help us find our hearts being transformed that we might be like that before you, innocent and hopeful and reliant, knowing that you are what we need. God, we're grateful for your presence in our lives, for your calling to something greater in an upside-down kingdom that may not make a whole lot of sense. But God, in you all things make sense, and you all things are good, and you all things come right. So we rest in you today. We ask you to rest upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon for our live Sunday service at 9.30, 11 a.m. or 11 a.m. online. Thanks for listening.